Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 20, The Art and Poetry of the Early Heian Period, Bonus Episode. You may recall from Episode 18, Tyra Treason, that Tyra Masakado exchanged poems with Tyra Sadamori's wife. She had just been subjected to rape at the hands of Masakado's soldiers, so it may have seemed to you like odd timing for a poem. While poems represented flights of fancy for many Western cultures, they were practically a standard form of communication for the aristocrats of Heian period Japan for almost everything besides official edicts. The subjects of early Heian poetry spanned a wide range of emotions, but many of them have a hint of melancholy. For example, the blossoms of spring are beautiful, but they will soon fall to the ground and be trampled. Images of natural beauty were common, a theme which remained throughout much of Japanese history. While waka is the general term for poetry, the more specific forms have names of their own. The longer forms of poetry that existed during the Nara period and before had, by the Heian period, fallen out of use. The choka was a somewhat long form that included phrase repetition that coupled syllabic rhythms in groups of five and seven, but it fell out of fashion near the beginning of the Heian, leaving us with many surviving poems that followed a form called tanka. The tanka itself is composed of two syllabic groups of phrases. The first three lines, with five, seven, and five syllables respectively, are referred to as the kami no ku, or upper phrase. The last two lines, which are seven syllables each, are referred to as the shimo no ku, or lower phrase. Thus, the total syllabic pattern was 57577. Those of you listeners who were brought up in the public education system of the United States are likely familiar with the form of haiku, which is five, seven, and five syllables. Haiku, however, would not come along for many hundreds of years, and for much of Japan's history, the tanka was considered the superior form of expression. Our poetry selections for this episode primarily come from the Kokin Wakashu, a collection of poems published by order of Emperor Daigo in 905, and likely made into its finished form by 920. We'll start with the poet who wrote the work's introduction, which I read part of in episode 15 of this season, titled Sugawara Michizane's Revenge. His name was Ki Tsurayuki, and his reputation as a master of poetry was immortalized in The Tale of Genji, a work which we shall discuss at length next season. The first poem of his, which I shall share, is called Composed on the First Day of Spring. I will read all of the poems in Japanese first so that you might hear the rhythm of the words in their original language, followed by an English translation. Here goes. Sode hijite, musubishi mizu no, koreru wo, harutatsu kyo no, kaze ya tokuramu. Waters I cupped my hands to drink wetting my sleeves, still frozen. 
might this first day of spring's wind thaw them. Another of his from the Kokin Wakashu is titled On Seeing Autumn Leaves on Otowa Mountain While Visiting Ishiyama. Akikaze no Fukinishi Hiyori Otowayama Mine no Kozuemo Irozu Kinikeri. From that first day, the winds of autumn sounded, the tips of trees on Otowa Mountain's peak were turning color. An appreciation of the harmony of nature and the seasons are obvious themes of tankas, and indeed of large swaths of Japanese art even to this day. Our next poem comes from Ki Tomonori, who was later included in the pantheon of 36 poetry immortals. He was a member of the Ki family, who unfortunately died before the Kokin Wakashu was completed. This poem is titled, Composition of a Figure Waiting for Someone Beside Chrysanthemum Blossoms. Hana Mitsutsu Hito Matsutoki wa Shirotai no Sodeka to nomizo Ayamatare keru Looking at flowers, waiting for my love, I mistook the blossoms for the white sleeve of his gown. Next, we will turn our attention to Mibu Tadamine, who rose to prominence by winning various poetry competitions throughout Heian Kyo, and is thus still considered an influential composer. This poem's title is simply Composed for a Poetry Contest at the House of Prince Koresada. Yamada moru aki no kariyo ni okutsuyu wa ina o sedori no namida narikeri. The dew that settles on a makeshift hut in this mountain field, tears shed by the rice bearing bird. Any overview of Heian period poetry would be incomplete without including at least one of the influential women who composed tankas at this time, so I will share a few of the works of the prolific Ono Komachi, whose life is even more mired in legend than Taira Masakado. This poem of hers is untitled. Aki no yomo na nomi narikeri ao to ieba Autumn nights, long only in name. Let's meet, we say. Yet dawn comes to part us before we've begun. Her next poem, which I shall recite, also has no title and strikes a very similar melancholic tone. Iro miede utsuro mono wa Yono nakano hito no kokoro no hana nizo arikeru. Not changing color, yet fading all the same. Such is the flower of the heart of one who survives this world of love. The final poem I have selected is by Ki Tsurayuki. I thought it fitting to use one of his pieces as our final poem, since he compiled the text from which these works are drawn from. 
The following tanka refers to a Japanese autumnal custom called momijigari, which means to hunt for fallen leaves. Participants gather in nearby forests and try to find the most beautiful autumn leaf. This poem was composed during such a leaf hunt. Miru hito mo nakute chirinuru okuyama no momiji wa yoru no nishiki narikeri. They must fall with no one to see them. Red leaves of autumn deep in the mountains, brocade in the night. If you'd like to read more poetry from the Kokin Wakashu, I have placed a link in the episode description to the University of Virginia's translated selections, which are freely accessible. In addition to the composition of beautiful poetry, the early Heian period also witnessed the birth of some impressive artwork. I mentioned in the first season that Japan is home to lacquer trees, whose sap is used to finish wood and metalwork. The Heian period saw a burst of artisanal activity with regards to lacquer, especially in the process of manipulating the substance for decoration. Maki-e is a Japanese term that literally means sprinkle picture. It is a process by which decorative elements can be added to items which are then lacquered, preserving both the item and the artwork. While artisans have been pioneering various decorative techniques since at least the Nara period, it was in the Heian that the name Maki-e came into common use. While fired clay pottery was still the standard for the common people, both the Kuge of Heian-kyo and the provincial elites desired makie decorated items like plates, bowls, sake bottles, and fine boxes. The process generally began with a sketch that was then transferred to the item in question. A shiny metal, usually copper or gold, was then sprinkled onto the unfinished item within the boundaries of the decoration, which was then coated in lacquer and left to dry. Flowers were a common element, as well as ocean waves and rice crops. We will revisit Makie next season as it continued to develop and grow throughout the Heian period and beyond, and remains popular in Japan to this day. In the early 800s, esoteric Buddhism arrived on Japan, courtesy of Saicho and Kukai. I mentioned that Kukai in particular championed a pantheon called the Thirteen Buddhas, which was actually a collection of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and awakened deities called Wisdom Kings. Among these thirteen are some names which, hopefully, are by now somewhat familiar. Sakyamuni, the historical Buddha, is obviously included, going by his Japanese name Shaka. Yakushi, or the Medicine Buddha, who has been associated with healing, is also included, as well as Maitreya, the Buddha of the future, going by his Japanese name of Miroku. A few other figures make an appearance in this pantheon who will become more important in future religious movements in Japan. Kannon is a bodhisattva included in the Thirteen Buddhas who represents compassion, she has roots in South Asia in both Theravada and Mahayana traditions, and is venerated in Vajrayana areas as well. Her Sanskrit name is Avalokitesvara, which was translated in Chinese to the name Guanyin. 
She appears in the Lotus Sutra, as well as numerous other scriptures, and one of the best-known stories about her is that she vowed to never rest until she had helped every sentient creature attain awakening and escape from the cycle of karmic rebirth. As she strained to assist so many, another Buddha helped her by splitting her two arms into a thousand arms. Avalokitesvara appears as a male deity in some parts of Asia, but the version that came to Japan was female, and also only had two arms, and thus Kannon remains a woman in her modern depictions. The Buddha who helped her by splitting her arms is known as Amitabha, and his Japanese name is Amida. He was said to have lived as a Buddhist monk, possibly on another planet, who, like Kannon, despaired of ever seeing every sentient being attain awakening. He pursued enlightenment with a furious energy and, upon his awakening, used the power he had attained to create a land called Budaksetra, a word which translates to Buddha field, but is often referred to as the pure land. Called Ojo in Japanese, the pure land was a paradise realm that existed outside of material reality where Amida gathered those who worshipped him. Schools focused on the worship of Amida were called pure land schools, and while the seeds for such belief existed in Japan during the early Heian period, they had yet to really take root among the common people. That will change in future eras. As was the case in the Nara period, the artwork of the early Heian was influenced primarily by the growth of Buddhism. Statues of the 13 Buddhas were popular additions to Shingon temples, and the statuary itself began to change composition. While cast bronze had been the standard medium for religious icons throughout the Nara period and remained in use in the early 800s, by the middle of the Heian period, carved wood began to see more frequent application in temples around the nation. There were many reasons for this shift, but the most obvious are probably availability of material and the relative level of skill required. Bronze casting is hot, difficult work which requires a lot of skill in metalworking to come out right. The metals had to be acquired, and while Japan had discovered some indigenous sources of copper and iron, these were in high demand and subject to shortages. Wood, however, was everywhere. Even in modern times, 70% of Japan is covered in forests. In addition to painted wooden statuary, another artistic innovation with roots in the early Heian period was the mandala. Meant as a visual guide for religious practitioners, mandalas are commonly used in Hinduism, Jainism, and other Pan-Asian religions as well. They consist of geometric shapes, usually many circles or squares, orbiting an important central figure. In the mandala of the womb realm, the Buddha Vairokana sits in the center and is surrounded by eight other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in a pattern of a lotus blossom. Around this roughly circular shape are rows and columns of other beings who become smaller and more numerous as they get farther from the center. Mandalas were sometimes used in the Abhisheka, or initiation ritual, of both Tendai and Shingon sects. The blindfolded initiant would toss a flower upon the mandala, then dedicate themselves to the teachings of that particular Buddha or Bodhisattva. 
While Buddhism and Kami worship tend to get the most of the attention in Japanese history, there is another practice which we should discuss here. In the late 600s, a hermit shaman remembered as En no Gyoja, a name which means En the ascetic, was attracting the ire of the imperial court, then located in the Nara Basin, through his mountaintop ascetic practices. According to the Nchoku Nihongi, he was exiled in 699 to a remote volcanic island called Izunoshima, which is located south of the Izu Peninsula in Kanto. The Asuka period court guarded their ritualist supremacy very jealously at the time, and no doubt saw this independent practitioner in their backyard as a threat. Gradually, some people began to imitate Enno Gyoja's hermit-like existence in the mountaintops throughout the region, and then the nation, practicing a religion called Shugendo. It was, and still is, a highly syncretic belief system of ascetic mountaintop hermits, and by the Heian period was incorporating elements from Buddhism, Taoism, and indigenous shamanism. While it managed only a meager following throughout the Nara period, by the middle of the early Heian, it was starting to become more popular and gaining enough of a following to be noticed. Some kuge of the Heian even began to make their own pilgrimages to the Kumano Sanzan, the three primary Kumano shrines in southern Kansai, which were important to Shugendo, Buddhist, and Kami practitioners. The final artistic development which we will discuss in this episode is the emergence of kana. While the invention of Japan's two phonetic alphabets is traditionally attributed to Kukai, this is usually considered a hand-waving invention of later historians. The truth is, kana probably evolved among the literate class of Japan and had its origins in an earlier innovation called manyogana. Using Chinese characters for their phonetic value rather than their meaning, manyogana was used to compose the manyoshu poetry collection, which we discussed in season 4, which is where manyogana gets its name. The creation of kana was, in many ways, the next logical step in that process. Existing kanji were simplified to their basic elements, then employed only as phonetic markers. Hiragana, the kana alphabet meant to be used with native Japanese words, began as a cursive style of Chinese characters, which were then given simple transformations so that they were easy to write. Katakana, the alphabet used for borrowed and adopted foreign words, were created by taking parts of Chinese characters which matched their pronunciations. The creation and propagation of kana was an important development for Japan linguistically, and follows the Heian period's trend of Japan creating more of its own native cultural milestones, rather than borrowing from China. This episode brings us to the official end of Season 5, the early Heian period. Next season, we will discuss the increasing power of the Fujiwara clan, the impressive cultural achievements of 10th and 11th century Japan, and the rise of the samurai class, who will eventually decide that, in spite of all his faults, Taira Masakado may have had a point. I will be releasing two more episodes of this season which will be available only to third-tier supporters on Patreon. The first will detail the arms and armor of the early Heian period, 
and the second is a story episode, which I have written, that follows the misadventures of a Kanto warrior who crosses paths with Taira Masakado. The regular podcast will return September 27th. In the meantime, please consider supporting this program on Patreon to gain access to those exclusive bonus episodes. Visit patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan, all one word. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.